Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that when Jonathan Price appeared in the first series of Whose Line Is It Anyway, he and Paul Merton were challenged to work the line It's Only Cotton Wool into the Every Other Line round. They just about managed it. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers, that nobody else ever seems to, is, it says here, Birmingham's leading cutlery expert, Nina Buckley. Nina, what are you up to? Where can we find it? Well, I'm not really up to much, to be perfectly honest, apart from messing about on Twitter. So you can find me there, Deathbed Buckley. Okay, well, I can't really do a big, long, elaborate introduction to your first choice, because it's got one of the most bizarre introductions to anything I've ever heard. Okay, an intro there that'll be very familiar to you if you've been watching the Top of the Props repeats on BBC4. That's Wax with Bridge to Your Heart from 1987. Nina, who were they and did they build a bridge to your heart? They certainly did. I was obsessed with this song. Absolutely obsessed. And as much as I was obsessed with it, I forgot all about it very quickly (laughs) soon after it exited the chart. It's Graham Goldman from 10cc and Andrew Gould from such hits as Lonely Boy, what a banger, and the theme tune to The Golden Girls. So when you've got 25% of 10cc and the writer of The Golden Girls theme tune, you've definitely got a, well, a banger, really. A surefire hit on your hands. So I was completely obsessed with this song growing up. say growing up, for as long as it was in the charts. And I just play it on a tape that I've recorded from the radio of course over and over and over again and then just completely forgot all about it until maybe seven or eight years ago I was at home watching Sarah Cox's Sounds of the 80s and there it was it just appeared on the screen with the amazing video by Storm Thorgson and yeah I've been obsessed again with it ever since. Well that's not surprising because it is a really really good record and the 12 inch in particular is really good but I'll come back to that but Mm-hmm. I looked into this a bit because I find it interesting that when we think of the 80s, we think of loads of bands that have been around for decades at that point making comebacks with not mm-hmm. very interesting records that were still somehow, mainly because of Live Aid sort of catapulted back into the top 10 and so on. But obviously you've got these guys who had huge hits in the 70s and Greg Goldman had been writing stuff for people like The Hollies and Herman's Hermits in the 60s. Mm-hmm. They were writing really mm-hmm. big hits and obviously they could have just, you know, now they would do Goldman and Gold together at last and they would tour of you know music rooms at theatres but they'd obviously thought we need to do 
doing something a bit different and we are a yeah. little bit older so mm-hmm. it looks like their thing was they treated it a bit tongue-in-cheek they were originally called world in action and they found that they couldn't call themselves that for rights reasons because of the yeah you know the granada documentary series with loads of jeremy corbyn men on really crumbly film <laughs> which has a brilliant theme tune as it well. does which they didn't cover sadly that was actually joe <laughs> cocker's band the grease band but yeah that's another story but they shortened world in action to wacs and then wax which is where it came from or wax uk as they were known in america what i first thought of when i was looking out for this was i remember before bridge to your heart came out they had a single called systematic which mm-hmm. i remember them doing on checkers plays pot and the reason i remember it was that they had clearly thought we are you know being generous we are in our 30s <laughs> we're on this kids show we can't be you know posing like aha or somebody and so they were messing about with toy instruments making the audience laugh <laughs> I went on YouTube to find that to see if it was exactly as I remembered. It was, but not only that, it was the same edition, not only as where Les Dennis showed up as Vivian and went, Hello, Chagas! Oh it's me! But also the performance of Think for a Minute by the House Martins. <laughs> In which Stan all of my favourite yeah, things. Yeah, Stan dropped his plectrum into the middle of his acoustic guitar and started trying to shake it out in the middle of the song. <laughs> and also, somebody forgot to pick up a trumpet that was on stage. You can see Norman Cook looking round at the others like, it's one of you supposed to be miming. <laughs> but it was all in the same episode and that was really, really weird. I need to see this. I need to see this immediately. If I wasn't speaking to you, it would be on now. <laughs> that sounds amazing. But yeah, I know what you mean. They were I suppose a little bit older to be pop stars but they still created one of the best pop singles of all time I mean that is in my opinion but it just I've never tired of hearing it there's just so much to it and there's a sax a sax solo we don't get sax solos anymore we're not very sax positive these days are we when it comes to pop music I think free the sax have free sax casual sax every pop song going should have casual sax in it and just yeah never tire of hearing it and also that sax solo I've just realised bizarrely I didn't think of this when they wrote the intro it sounds like like the whose line is it anyway theme yes it really does yeah. and also they shout horn before it yeah which is impossible not to shout along with but we've got to talk about that intro i'm convinced <laughs> that it gets listed on great mistakes in pop lists that is deliberate that's a former member of 10cc has done that and i'm sure it's done deliberately to get local radio djs in the 80s going kind of funny i like it when they leave bits like that into pop songs where they make a mistake mm. and like, <laughs> that's what they were deliberately when they do it on top of the pops, they mime to that as well, with big yeah. grins on their faces. Yeah, it really does have a strong start and it doesn't stop from there. <laughs> Going back to Storm Thorgerson, though. Yes. That's a really interesting choice for the mid-80s, because I don't think it was exactly scrabbling round for money by that no. point, but it was someone who was really associated with the late 60s, early 70s in particular, particularly his work for Pink Floyd and for 10CC and people like that. He was still doing new stuff, like he did that, you know, that XTC album cover, it's the cover of Go To, where it says, like, this is the record cover, this is designed to... That yeah. really famous one, he worked with Amazulu as well, but it was a name who kind of didn't have maybe the same cultural standing as he had done yeah. 10 years earlier. And he does this really, really... Whether say up to the minute video, if you saw it on the Max Headroom show, it will fit perfectly. Yes, 
Yeah. Well, they couldn't ask Godly and Cream, could they, to do the video? No, yeah. <laughs> Who else were they going to ask? And it is very sort of Godly and Cream-esque, isn't it? It's, as you say, quite very modern video. But I don't, I'm not sure he'd done very many videos before. It was mostly album artwork, wasn't it? He's a graphic designer. Yes, yeah. And you've also just reminded me, mentioning Godly and Cream. What's a couple of years before this? Wedding Bells, which deliberately has a bad oh, edit in it. I absolutely love that song. But there and you that's go. Something... Former members of 10CC putting a mistake into something on purpose. Yeah, yeah. That's another song that's recently come back into my life that I was uh, just crazy about when I was younger. And I didn't know it was 10cc until about six months ago. So did you actually, I know you taped it off the radio, did you ever actually own this in any form? Because the main two things I remember were, one, it was on Hit 7, just after the Hits albums had jumped the shark, but also the 12-inch. As people forget, up until about 1991, 12-inch mixes were a very different thing. It wasn't just dance remixes. It was like almost an excursion on the song. The one I always come back to is the Haircut 112 Inches. They were very clearly designed and recorded as eight-minute songs. They were then edited down, you know, to be Fantastic Day or whatever. And this is just bridge to your heart as you know it, but even more powerful. I've not actually heard the 12-inch. However, I did end up buying it. It's called the unabridged mix, which... I'm learning. I like this. But I did, after I'd heard it on Sarah Cox Sound of the 80s, I went to a market in, I think it was in Stoke-on-Trent, and managed to get the album on vinyl. So I, I did own it in a, you know, a proper format. However, I didn't have a record player. So... <laughs> So much I was in love with this song, I bought it so that I couldn't hear it. This has been a recurring theme on Looks Unfamiliar because a couple of really? people have talked about buying records on vinyl when they didn't own a record player anymore. <laughs> Particularly David Smith talking about Stranger in This Town by Richie Sambora, which he had no option but to frame and put on this wall. Oh, I should have done that. That would have been great. I think I've still got it somewhere. I've got quite a few LPs, but no, no record player. Why is that? Why do we do that? I could have just bought the CV- CD. I wonder if it's one of those CDs that's now worth a lot of money because a lot of those early ones were never, you know, they came out when who had the CD player at that point? A few no Guardian one. columnists maybe and that yuppie yeah. character on Brookside <laughs> and, you know, things like the Hollywood Beyond album on CD, until that was reissued that was worth like hundreds because there were very few copies of it out there mm. so I wonder if, given it was 1987 the Wax album might be hard to come by on CD. Maybe. Do you not think they might have reissued it? Oh, probably. And there's probably like a million best of waxes but there will always be people who want that very first pressing of it yeah yeah, I'm not there are theories about pure. It's always people who talk about pure pop that want things like that. I mean, I I really am a, a massive pop fan, but I just find that also exhausting. That pure pop thing. <laughs> okay, we get it. <laughs> well, I mean, there you go. That's the top of the pops repeats all over for you. I love that you get things like Bridge to Your Heart on them, not things mm. that you can see all the time. Every and if they're not yeah. on some other clip show thing on BBC Four, you can go onto YouTube and watch them. It's the things you don't expect. And like you say, yeah. Bridge to Your Heart. I probably hadn't, weirdly, I probably thought about them on Checkers Plays Pop more than I thought about them on Top of the Pops. Yeah, it's so strange. The song is never played. It's never part of any sort of 80s compilation. And I think I think it, char- it got into the chart, it was like number 12 maybe. So, you know, it was quite a popular song. It's, it's well loved by a lot of people. But it never seems to feature on any compilations. I've never really heard it on radio up until this moment, sort of eight years ago, and it was on the TV. And I just, I find that really bizarre because it's a great radio song it's got to be in the top 10 or it's it's nothing that's how it is and goldman and gold just missed out by two and that i will never forgive the uk for that
They should have built a bridge to the charts in that case. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> okay, well, moving on to your next choice now, who is a character who, if they built a bridge to your heart, he would probably just sit under it and sulk. This is Channel 4. In five minutes, this land of England. But before that, another of life's lessons creeps up on Murren Butch Stanzinger. Stansinger decided today things would be different. For one thing, he wouldn't spend most of the morning wallowing in his bed drinking cups of coffee. Okay, the ill-fitting theme music there and the slightly less jaunty introduction to Murrenbuck Stansinger. Nina, who was he? <laughs> Just the most awful character. <laughs> In many, many ways. But also, just lovely. Murren Butch Stansenger is a very small, grey, humanoid, well, Frankie Howard-looking cartoon character from the 80s. I think it goes right back to the start of Channel 4. They made about 50 episodes of this, and it was just a, a sort of day in the life of Murren and his interactions with people. And it was miserable. It had, as you say, a very ill-fitting theme tune, sort of jaunty, Charleston-esque... <laughs> And then it cuts to Murren lying in bed with depression. So <laughs> this is quite a departure. But I just, I really enjoyed the world that it created. It was very, very British. And I remember seeing it for the first time as a kid and just being captivated by it, but not really understanding why. I didn't know why it appealed to me. I didn't know why it drew me in. I just think it's because he really enjoyed being in his own company. <laughs> and whenever he interacted with people, they just brought him problems. But then there was also quite a lot of problems that were his own making as well. But yeah, I, I just, I loved this TV show. And again, same with, I just forgot all about it until somebody mentioned it at work maybe 15 years ago. And since then, I've been watching episodes of it on the internet every chance I can get. Can I just ask, did somebody mention it at work because somebody was living under the sink in the staff room? <laughs> I mean, he looked like a depressed, lost Monster Munch flavour, but that's where he lived. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what brought it up. I think maybe we were just talking about cartoons from our, our childhood and somebody mentioned this and I just it just jolted me back to watching it. So he used to show it quite early. I think it's sort of around about five o'clock mark in between sort of gaps in the scheduling on Channel 4. But then I think they realised the content <laughs> and how I say philosophical or melancholy or esoteric that it, it was and they moved it I think to past the watershed <laughs> they wouldn't show it earlier in the day then because I suppose it was quite grown up but yeah I don't know why somebody mentioned it but I'm really glad that they did well there was apparently a cancelled Christmas special in 1988 yes. that was never made so I wonder imagine? how far would you have had to go with something for Channel 4 to cancel it in 1988 but like you say it did start out as a children's program Channel 4's children's programmes early on were really, really weird. It was like mm. the same way around that time you get children's shows put on by fringe theatre troops, mm -hmm. where they're just being all these children, like, saying, but I don't like this. 
why are adults telling me I like this? I'm actually quite frightened. And Channel 4 seemed to dive into that because there were things like, there was Everybody Here, the sort of multicultural magazine show presented by Michael Rosen, mm-hmm. which I remember liking, but finding it weird. It was a very kind of deserted yeah. sort of view of, I think it was mostly in London, but it looked really eerie and creepy. There was Will Quack Quack, that oh, bloody God, Welsh yeah. duck who would just... <laughs> He'd do something that wasn't actually that wrong and then be told off for it and then be sent to bed and go, quack. <laughs> and the Pocket Money programme, which is basically just moaning about the fact that somebody had written off to the Culture Club fan club and their <laughs> membership pack didn't arrive on time. Damn you, Culture Club. <laughs> Helping Henry, which is an alien who talked to a chair or something. Mm. Pob's programme, which is, that's like, sort of, it's like a Soviet art installation. It really is, it really is. They were very challenging programmes, the children's TV from Channel 4. I don't know, maybe the people that sort of produced them were all brought up on the public information films and really wanted to continue that terror for all of the children forever. (laughs) Well, I did do a bit of research of this and it was produced actually and animated and narrated by Timothy Forder, who's one of those names in animation where he turns up a lot in the sort of, you know, the kind of UK supermarket own brand Aladdin and Cinderella that you got around the time there was somebody else doing bigger. That weird, uniquely British look where it doesn't look cheap. It doesn't look mm-hmm. as though no effort's gone in, but it's got mm. that distinctly odd flavour to it. Yeah. In a, yeah. I'd say that in a positive way. And this was just a character that he dreamt up. You know, he just came up with Murren and then it when Channel 4 nowhere. started. Yeah. yeah. It, it was just a perfect fit. And I can see what they were trying to do. They were trying to provide an alternative, but this was maybe a little too alternative. Too. <laughs> yeah. One of the animators that worked on it, I think the reason why they didn't do the Christmas special was because one of the animators that worked on it actually went to work on When the Wind Blows. Okay, so... <laughs> that makes a lot of sense, actually. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> frying pan and fire. <laughs> We've worked on Murren, and now we're going to work on Nuclear Fallout, which d- just seems like a natural career progression <laughs> for that sort of animator. And speaking of mismatched characters, the very odd thing in this, as we both said, Murren looked very, very strange. Everyone else he interacted with was like an ordinary human. Cousin Rossiter looks quite like Murren, except for... It, it, well, they both look like Frankie Howard, but Rossiter, I think, has glasses. I think that's, that's the only difference. And he's quite... Well, he says he's quite well-travelled, but he isn't really and he reveals to Murren that his stories are quite tall tales and that he's actually quite depressed to which Murren kicks him out of the house <laughs> yes how dare you try and trump my depression with yours they'd have loved social media wouldn't they oh he very much he, Murren is very much a man of our time now for sure he spent an entire episode looking for a piece of of lining from a raincoat because he really enjoyed the way that it smelt. Only to be interrupted by his next door neighbour whose mother had gone into hospital. Her hamster had died and she caught her boyfriend cheating. He offered no help whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) None. And was really more concerned with why he'd been interrupted in his search for this piece of raincoat lining. (laughs) When's International Murren's Day? (laughs) Every day. Every day is International Murren's Day. Just that self-absorption, I think I found that really fascinating. I mean, he's definitely, definitely, you know, self-obsessed and there are some real personality quirks to Moran, I think we should say. <laughs> well, he looks a little bit like a certain gentleman who recently bought a social media site. Oh my God, he does. He looks exactly like him. We can't say his name, can we? <laughs> no swearing on the podcast. <laughs> 
he does. He looks exactly like him. Oh, I can't believe I didn't notice that. There is a very strange, when you look back at the 80s, though, you know, people go on about, it was more a 70s thing, but there was the way we just took aspects of horror or, you know, unpleasantness in children's television in our stride. There was also things that, you know, did not fit into that category like this, where in their own way, they were, I don't want to say upbeat, but you know what I mean? They weren't there to disturb, but mm. that you just accepted that, oh, that's what the telly does sometimes. That's what yeah. that theatre troupe coming to assembly in school do. <laughs> you know, it was, just, it was just part of the, I won't even say part of the menu, because it's never a choice, it's just part of the agenda. You just went like, oh yeah, there's that, and then another time it'll be Hong Kong Fui or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it, things were quite dark, weren't they? We, we lived alongside them. I, don't, I mean, I, I think this started in sort of 1982, so coming out of the 70s, things were dark anyway, weren't they? <laughs> <laughs> all the striking and things like that. So maybe this was actually thought of as being quite joyful <laughs> by those standards. <laughs> well, I certainly remember it being amongst early Channel 4 could be quite disturbing. A, because they showed disturbing stuff, and B, because there were quite often men shouting about obscure political things or consumer mm. rights. Only not on crumbly films sat on big chairs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was definitely the goth channel, wasn't it? <laughs> There's yeah, quite a few things that, but but obviously then we have countdown as well. Yeah, so it, I suppose it just balances out with that. <laughs> I will say, though, that the messages in it are not... I mean, you compare it to things like, I suppose, well, to pick a random example, not looking at anything that's right next to me on my desk at all, but Finger Pops. <laughs> Famously, mm. there's the episode where they tell the story about the crow who can't drink from the glass of water, so he one by one deposits pebbles in it to mm-hmm. raise the water level so he can drink. You know, that's about patience and feeling like you've mm. earned something. Whereas in this, the morals of things like, if you put a thing off for long enough, the need to do it disappears. Yeah. No, it doesn't. It actually gets more pressing and urgent. Yeah, there were no messages with this other than just do what you want and just be upset all the time. You just, just everything is so irksome about this. <laughs> There's very few positives, and knowingly so, because there are episodes where Moran does something really sort of dead tight, really awful, and he looks to camera, well, whatever it would be, you know, looks to the viewer to make you complicit. It's just dreadful. There's one episode where his neighbour, the young sort of blonde lady, comes around, she wants to visit him and she'd like to come in, and he said, oh, no, 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 you can't come in, I've got to tidy up, my place is a mess, and she's like, it's always a mess, what's the problem? It turns out he's got another woman in his crack. He's got another woman there and he doesn't want her to see that. And then he looks towards the viewer at the end and we're like, well, Murren, you dog. <laughs> That's awful. How did he get one there to begin with? How did he not just put her off within seconds with this moaning about himself? I've no idea, but the other lady looks French. So maybe, I don't know, she liked his sort of attitude. Maybe she finds him sort of nonchalant. I don't know. <laughs> Basically, it was an animation for Smith's fans. Yeah, 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 which I grew up to be. So, yeah, that's accurate, 100%. <laughs> and I'm yeah. sure Murren would sympathise with certain views held by certain ex-members of the band. You're on about Johnny Moore, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, he probably didn't follow Modest Mouse as kind of... <laughs> or the Cribs. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the Cribs, well... Yeah, not for him. But yeah, he was very Morrissey. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. Okay, well, we've already come up with several lookalikes from. <laughs> Murren Bush Danzinger. I'm not going to go as far as to say there was another gentleman around in the 80s who was making himself look very, very weird and pale because this record isn't actually by him. Shake my floor, get a grandma. Strap my 
And that was Jack Michelson with Dancing Up The Wall. <laughs> As heard on, 439 Golden Greats, never mind the originals, here's the heebie-jeebies. Now, some of you might know the heebie-jeebies are meaning the songs in very high voices, but it all went a lot further than that, didn't it, Nina? It really did. I mean, what we had here was a band formed by three very talented young men who all met at university. And the influence that these guys had on me was huge. <laughs> Number two song in Australia. I mean, how many bands can say that? How many bands can say that? They did some incredible cover versions. Oh, not cover versions, sorry. They did some sort of versions of other artist songs that was quite ahead of my time, which was a Bowie-esque. Yes, it very much sort of based on Scary Monsters era Bowie, and apparently he loved it. Well, he had a really good sense of humour. That's definitely something you could say about David Bowie. <laughs> Well, before we go any further, there's something I really want to go on a bit of a rant about here, which is the heebie-jeebies, in terms of from the Oxford Review that they first started in, were the people who came up with what was originally a joke, which is now attributed to John Lennon, which is Ringo isn't the best drummer in the world, he's not even the best drummer in the Beatles, which for years people had speculated about the origin of that, and I think Jasper Carrot said it in possibly the edition of Carrot Confidential, but mm. one day, having heard it dozens of times, as, you know, most people I know will have done. Mm -hmm. I was listening to the first series of Radioactive, which was, I mean, we'll go into all this in a minute, but which is a Radio 4 sketch show that the people behind the heebie-jeebies were also behind, where it's repeated in that. It was originally in their Oxford Review in 1979. Mm. Now, I emailed Mark Lewison, the Beatles expert, saying, well, I think I've found where this comes from. He checked it out. He got all the paperwork out from the BBC and said, yes, it's correct. He tweeted saying, thanks to Out on Blue Six, we found the origin of this. Amazing. Now that then became a news story. Can you guess what happened when it became a news story? I got left out of it because I didn't <gasps> fit the journalism narrative. That's horrendous. I am still a little bit rankled about it. It wasn't Mark's fault at all, but that's how journalism works. So who did they say had discovered they it? They said he'd discovered it. Oh, that's <laughs> bad. That's awful. So did you not argue? <laughs> Show them the receipts. I mean, there's no point given that, <laughs> no, you know, know, when Stephen Fry, you know, revealed his suicide bid on Rahulastapur, that they didn't mention Richard in the news coverage and even he couldn't make a song and dance about it. I mean, I didn't that's think I still slightly different. <laughs> Yeah, I said, well, I suppose you've said it now, though, so that's good. You're telling the world now. <laughs> anyway, who were the people behind both things? So we have Angus Dayton, who really should come back to Have I Got News For You. Why he went, it just awful. It's been awful since he's got, since he went. And all he did was take some drugs and sleep with sex workers. It's not like it's tax evasion or anything like that, is it? We also have Philip Pope, who is an incredible composer. He wrote the theme tune to Whose Line Is It Anyway? He wrote one of the best or the second best breakup song after the Dear John theme called Bloody Cow. And it's, it's wonderful. He performed it on Who Dares Wins. So yeah, go and try and find it on YouTube. It's really funny. And my favourite of all, Mike Fenton-Stevens. He's just a joy. I really love this guy. He has possibly one of the 
best voices in the entertainment world. <laughs> I've got quite a nice story actually about Mike Fenton Stevens. Can I call him Mike? It's quite a lot to say, isn't it? Mike Fenton Stevens every time. I believe that's what he goes by actually, especially when he's buying things on eBay, which he seems to do quite a lot <laughs> for people I know. <laughs> What's he buying? Memorabilia? Well, the one I can remember for certain is he bought a copy of the Robbie Coltrane special on VHS from someone which he was in, so I assume he'd lost his copy. Right. They sent it to him for free when they realised it was him. Oh, that's kind. That's really nice. Well, I mean, do you know what? I'm going to keep calling him Mike Fenton Stevens. I think that's appropriate. Or Mr Fenton Stevens. I don't know. But Mike Fenton Stevens. So maybe a couple of years back, it might be during the pandemic, I think. It was a a band t-shirt day, like Radio 6 do that t-shirt thing and Michael McKean from the Christopher Guest film fame Spinal Tap best in show he was wearing a heebie-jeebies t-shirt which I think Mike Fenton Stevens had given to him and he tweeted a picture of this and I commented that's amazing I would love that t-shirt Mike Fenton Stevens saw this sent me a message asking for my address and my <laughs> my t-shirt size and sent me a heebie-jeebies t-shirt for nothing I was Giddy is an understatement. Yeah, he's such a really, really sweet guy. The only other person I can think who has had a career like Mike Fenter Stevens is Jeff McGiven, who seems to, between them, I think they have probably been in every comedy, British comedy show <laughs> in the last 30 years. He's got like over 100 acting credits. He will have been in pretty much everything that you've seen, even Bird's Eye Healthy Options microwave meal advert, where he's trying to pull his flatmate's girlfriend by making I think it's like a bolognese or something (laughs) so instead of going to the gym where his mate I think he's called Nigel maybe has been he's invited his his mate's girlfriend over to woo her so he's a bit of a dog there he's been in ghosts not going out Benidorm nighty night and interestingly nighty night he plays Gordon Fox the vicar second time he's played a vicar first time it was in EastEnders so he doesn't just do comedy, he does straight stuff as well. But he's just incredible. I just love seeing him pop up in anything. He's just a joy. And I bet he's just like a dead nice person. You'd want him as your uncle, wouldn't you? Well, you might not want Phil Pope as your uncle. The reason I say that is because <laughs> I would like to get to the bottom of this. He appears to really hate Christmas, so you wouldn't get any presents from him. Not only did he do the two spitting image anti-Christmas singles, Santa Claus is on the Dole and No More Christmas singles, but Radioactive, which we will explain what that is eventually, <laughs> he did as Wizened, Thank Christ It Isn't Christmas Every Day, which is basically just a long broadside against any well, not even people who just did the Christmas record. People who did records around the Christmas, like, has a go at Orville in it. But the line in that that's really always got to me is, and I've remembered this since I first heard this, one chorus goes, thank Christ it isn't Christmas every day, skin, roll and rat alive and shout hooray. Now, aside from the fact that roll and rat didn't even, not only did he not do a Christmas record, he didn't do any records for hits at Christmas, but skinning roll and rat alive would leave a hand, David Claridge's hand. <laughs> That's always really possible. What is this issue with Christmas songs? I don't Maybe he caught his mum doing something with Santa Claus. I don't know. <laughs> like, that is a real... That's a personal vendetta, isn't it, against Christmas? That's not just for laughs. That is... This means something to Philip Pope. And Angus Deaton, like you say, let's get this out of the way. 
I still have some issues with what happened over Five Got News for you. You cannot pin, you know, everything that's gone wrong on one thing, but I would say there is a large sort of burden of responsibility there, particularly given some of the people who ended up on the show mm -hmm. after he was dismissed. And also, I still don't buy, you know, the thing about, oh, well, he became the focus of the news, so he couldn't realistically be an anchor anymore. Come on, you've got, you know, three that's other nonsense. guests against Neil and Christine Hamilton. You can skewer yeah. them with one sentence. Oh, yeah, yeah. Utter nonsense, really. Really. I mean, there's obviously more to the story, I think, than just he was caught doing drugs and sleeping with sex. It's just the stuff that happened afterwards, isn't it, that just got really murky and horrible. And I think you are right. I think that there was a real cultural shift when Angus Satan stopped presenting Have I Got News For You, definitely with the BBC. A similar thing happened to him when he did Would I Lie To You. I think he was sacked from that, I say sacked, probably wasn't sacked, but, you know, he was let go or, you know, they went with Rob Braden because he told a joke about Jimmy Savile. I can't remember the joke, but it was something to do with Jimmy Savile's mum. But he lost the presenting job for Would I Lie To You just because of that joke. So he just seemed to be really unfair on him, <laughs> considering some of the jokes that we hear now. I mean, the last leg, that sort of joke is just standard, you know, about Jimmy Savile. We get Frankie Boyle on anything. you just got a loose cannon, but for some reason, Angus Dayton wasn't allowed. And it is a shame that he's not really found a niche since then. I mean, I know he did present Would I Lie to You, but I always, because I loved Radioactive and KYTV, again, mm. we're going to have to explain what they are in a minute, but <laughs> I always loved that he'd show up on things like he was always on Lexi Sales stuff. Yeah, he was always the straight guy. He did Lipton Ice adverts, and did he, he do all did, round uh, as well. And I, I always really liked him. I didn't quite understand the TV's Mr. Sex thing. I'm not sure anyone did actually regard uh, him as a sex symbol, particularly with that early well, that I got news for you haircut. <laughs> I think I've, I've always found him quite attractive. So. I don't, I don't know but anyway but he did a Vauxhall Nova advert didn't he and was it Barclay card as well he did the adverts for those but there was something I suppose quite suave about him really and I think because he was always the sort of straight man there was a mystery to him we have to talk about the heebie-jeebies in a minute it's not just this is such a great fascinating area but yeah mm. they did the Oxford Review then they did at roughly the same time the heebie-jeebies first single and the pilot edition of Radioactive which was basically a Radio 4 sketch show about about local radio, which mm -hmm. then evolved into KYTV on BBC Two, which was about sort of early satellite TV. And the fact that they made that so entertaining, so amusing, and such a shareable joke at a time when nobody had satellite TV. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, you think about how many people heard Do the Bartman years before they saw The Simpsons. Oh, yeah, I'd not thought about that. It really was a minority thing, but they somehow took what was funny about it and made it shareable. And all the little details, like Sir Norman Tonsil, the owner of Radioactive, where when they did the reunion <laughs> special, he'd had to leave because he'd been arrested on the charge of perverting the course of a small river. <laughs> But somehow, as I've learned it, that makes sense for something that Norman Tonsil would have done. And obviously, he was replaced by Kenneth Yellowhammer for KYTV. Mm -hmm. They were both such good shows, which okay. they're really sort of underappreciated. Both, I know they're technically essentially the same show in different mediums, but uh -huh. they're so underappreciated. But the heebie-jeebies were technically on both of those every week doing a parody song. Yes, they managed to get two albums worth out of it. I think, I'm going to say, I think the first album is better than the second one. I mean, there was a heebie-jeebie stage show and there was on Radio 2, the heebie-jeebie story, which is basically like, you know, mm. one of those Radio 2 documentaries where now you get sort of, I'm Brad Pitt and you're listening to Meditate, the other side of Need You Tonight that nobody ever remembers. <laughs> the In Excess story here on Radio 2. 
the main thing I remember about them from the time was they did Boring Song, which is a brilliant status quo parody, which again, status quo, yes, maybe they did do songs with two lines in, as this song makes clear, and endless false endings, <laughs> but they loved it. You know, they did have a sense of humour about themselves. And the main thing I remember is they did it on Tiz Was just before an outbreak, and they did, you know, the false endings, the another bit, da, 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 and there yeah. was the outbreak, and then it came back on, and there was just a pause, and then they went, another bit, da, 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 da. <laughs> they waited for the outbreak, another false ending. There's a couple, of, there's meaning the songs are very high voices on a few things, and there obviously were stage routines for all of these songs, and it's mm. a shame that we don't really have a record of that. Yeah, I wonder what Supertramp thought of <laughs> their song that they did, the Scatological song. <laughs> Gorgeous, isn't it? I don't know. According to people who've met Sting, he's a lovely guy and he does have quite a sense of humour, but I don't know what he would have thought about too depressed to commit suicide, the police send up. The thing I always love about that, because the great thing about these songs on the first album is they're funny every time you hear them. Mm, yeah. It's like everything about it. It's not just somebody's got in with some funny lyrics or a vague idea how to sound like another band. Everything about it is a joke and it opens with that kind of echo drum you got in the intro of every police record and somebody shouting, Come in! <laughs> <laughs> you know, on the chorus where he goes, Archipel, yo, yo, yo. Exactly. Like, I wonder how amused Sting was at the time. I don't know. I, I mean, I think Sting takes himself quite seriously. <laughs> And it is really, it's a great snapshot of the charts in sort of 79, 80, 81, which, you know, is where all these songs date from. Because like we said, you've got The Police, Michael Jackson, Status Quo, Satan with a lot reform school choir. <laughs> and also Simple Song by, well, Paul McCartthrob and Wangs. Oh. <laughs> which is basically just, I mean, I'm a great defender of McCartney in the 70s and 80s, but he mm-hmm. did do, I mean, he actually literally did Mary Had a Little Lamb as a single. Oh, I know. I know. I can forgive Paul McCartney for pretty much everything, but that is dreadful. Dreadful. Paul McCartney, is it true that he didn't like the Ruttles? He didn't find them funny? I will say he's the one who commented least about it. Right, you see what yeah. I mean. You know what that means, though, yes. don't you? <laughs> <laughs> so I can't see him liking the hippie <laughs> If you didn't like the Ruttles, there's no hope, is there? Well, the, the Bee Gees were really unamused, which... Really? You know, that is when surprising. When you spent a decade walking round, you know, with kind of lion o'hair and open shirts and medallions, singing in ridiculously high voices, which Kenny Everett has already made fun of you for, you do have to expect that people might, might take the piss a little bit. Yeah, you can't expect to be the Bee Gees and act like the Bee Gees and not have the mickey taken out of you for being the Bee Gees. I mean, some of the best things the Bee Gees have done have been by other people (laughs) such as the heebie-jeebies Kenny Everett and the Clive Anderson interview (laughs) which is genuinely one of my favourite, favourite things of all time from TV. how quick is he? You'll always be tossers to me (laughs) (laughs) and you don't say that not expecting somebody to make a comment about it, for heaven's sake of course I mean, oh, that's really a narrow world that you live in when you when you think you can say things like that without any sort of comeback whatsoever. But yeah, you'll always be tossed to me. I just, it is just wonderful. It's the best piece of TV. <laughs> I would have that shown on a loop if I could just forever and ever and ever. But they did have the second album, but also it had a couple of really forgotten spin-offs because Angus Deaton did on Capital Radio, The Encyclopedia of Rock. 
just basically, mm. it was to all intents and purposes. You know, Radio 1 was forever doing a 26-week, The History of Rock, usually yeah. by Alan Freeman. And it was that, but with like a heebie-jeebie slant. And that was so popular, there's a spin-off book from it. But also, there's a reason this is forgotten. In, I think it was 1985 on Radio 2, Phil Pope did The History of Rock, which was a kind of similar thing. Presented by Chris Langham, which is why it doesn't show up on oh, yeah, Radio 4 okay. Extra and so on. <laughs> but it was like they had so many ideas to do with this concept that it just kept spilling out into other areas. I think it's quite an easy, and I don't mean that as, you know, they found it very easy to do, but there's such a lot of material that you could take from it. They covered so many different genres of music as well that you could go in any direction, couldn't you? They did, didn't they do Billy Idiot? Is that Billy Idol? There's a Bruce Springsteen one as well. Well, Bruce Springbok, I think it was. <laughs> Purple Pants by Ponce. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of miles in it, definitely. And, and you know, we're still doing it now, aren't we, with Brian Pern and the sort of the rock history, Elton John and George Michael stories and things like that. People just love being, you know, lampooning pop stars. Well, like you say, you really did cover a lot of ground because as that title indicates, it is a double sort of covered album. Mm. One side it's sent up the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack and the other it's Nevermind the Bollocks. So <laughs> they were aware of what was going on. <laughs> yeah. But one thing I think is really fascinating now is the Michael Jackson parody. Mm-hmm. It predates any of his, it probably doesn't predate his actual weirdness, but it predates any public notion of it. When he was just, he was a strange figure who wouldn't stop dancing. And that was the worst sort of accusation you could fling at him. When you think a couple of years later, again, Phil Poe, Spitting Image, was doing, well, they actually did another one before the Mad Song, which was a send-up of Bad, which, yeah. again, was already hinting that it was a bit weird. That was in the first series of Spitting Image, and the puppet they have for that is terrifying. But in just a space of a couple of years, he become and there was worse to come, but he become this like really, really disturbing figure. But at this mm. point, he was just a pop star with pop star foibles. And it's so strange to have that kind of time capsule of that. Yeah, I, well, I think the signs were there. And I think if you are somebody who makes a living out of picking over <laughs> people, you know, satire and things like that, you will, you'll explore it, won't you? And they just, they could see where he was going. So it made it quite easy to write this. <laughs> I'm mad. Is it out of proportion as well? That was the other, the yes. Jack Michelson. <laughs> It really is a good album, though. It's not that easy to get hold of. And I think part of the reason for that is it was on original records who were a label that mainly existed to battle comedy records in the early 80s. They did mm. those original category recordings of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when they couldn't issue the original radio versions. There was also An Evening Without, which is the people who went on to be the cast of Injury Time later, Who Dares Wins, was their stage mm. review was on that label. I think oh, Douglas right. Adams wrote some of that, actually. But the some kind of, because it was such an ad hoc operation, some kind of rights problem with their back catalogue. The two heebie-jeebies albums have been re-released in other territories, but not over here. And that's a bit of a shame, really. It's not that hard to find. Well, unfortunately for you, to find a vinyl copy, because you can't play it. (laughs) I'd still buy it, though. Still buy it. Well, maybe I'll have a look on eBay. Maybe I can ask Mike... I was going to say, maybe he'll send you a copy. Maybe he's got a copy that I can have. I'll just message him on Twitter. (laughs) Maybe Michael McKean's got one as well. I can do me a tape of it. That'd be nice. I'll send him a cassette. Have you still got a cassette player, even? Do you know what? I actually have. Yeah, I've got two. I've got one that I've had since... 
possibly 2001 it's like a little cd stereo and then i've got a double tape deck as well that's probably about 25 years old how interesting <laughs> well you could take wax off pick of the pops onto it I can't do. <laughs> but if you could pick one current pop star to satirize who would it be i think they do a pretty good job of doing it themselves don't they harry styles maybe i think that would upset quite a lot of people everything is kind of beyond satire now i think even pop stars anybody that isn't has already been done <laughs> oh don't say that because that makes us that much closer to jeremy hunt making a record and i do not want that i do i'm sorry Actually, but no, i want that no. he, I can want cover, that. he can cover the jeremy hunt song from ali and herring's twitch of fun if you've not be... heard that i'm not gonna say what the lyrical content of that is but i would like to hear him singing that i think it's suitable punishment i want a full 12 track album from jeremy hunt i want each song to be around about three and a half four minutes long and i, I will buy it i will buy it i mean i won't buy it from i'll probably get it from spotify to be honest <laughs> but I, I want that album i want all of them to do an album i want to see how bad this can be i want to see how far we can take it i, I really do i want boris johnson to do an album i'm on that note <laughs> before you dig that hole any deeper let's leave that there nina it's been brilliant thank you thanks tim Some like Tim Worthington, the story of Bloodless by My Bloody Valentine, Foxface Alpha by Saint Etienne, Screamadelica by Primal Scream, Bandwagoness by Teenage Fan Club, and how Creation Records took on the world and nearly won. Find out more at timworthington.org. <laughs>